Welcome to the Global Visions Podcast. My name is Caitlin Chan, and I'm the Business Podcast Coordinator for the Brown Journal of World Affairs, a biennial journal of international relations and foreign policy produced at Brown University's Watson Institute for International and Public Affairs. The podcast seeks to explore international affairs and policy issues via a series of interviews with distinguished academics, policymakers, and activists. We are honored to be hosting our next guest of the podcast today, Brown University Professor and Associate Dean, Dr. Megan Rainey. Dr. Rainey has maintained a distinguished career of academic roles, with a focus on the impacts of firearm violence on health and healthcare systems in the United States. In addition to serving as the academic dean for the School of Public Health at Brown University, she is also a practicing emergency physician and director of the Brown Lifespan Center for Digital Health. Dr. Rainey's research mainly focuses on violence prevention, with a particular emphasis on firearm injury, as well as the use of technology to facilitate behavioral health. Dr. Rainey, thank you so much for joining us today. So to start, can you tell us a little bit about your background in public health and how you first became involved in your field of research? So I am by training an emergency physician, but I went into emergency medicine partly because it is the safety net of society. It is where we have a chance to take care of everyone, regardless of who they are, where they come from, what kind of insurance they have, what their primary language is, where they live. We also have a chance to change trajectories of health, both for the individual and then by watching patterns for society. And that's the essence of public health. It's the idea that we take things from that one-on-one level to thinking about the larger picture in which people live. We think about empowering patients or community members, but also about identifying and changing larger structural risk factors. And we think about setting up systems to help folks stay healthier. Thank you so much for tying your background in medicine to your research in public health. And those two fields are definitely interconnected. The next question is going to be, one of your main topics of research is violence prevention. Firearm injury has been a problem in the U.S. for decades now, and the rates show really no sign of slowing down. Do you believe that there is a single solution for this health problem, or is it going to come from multiple different factors, multiple different government departments? There is no single solution to any health problem, much less firearm injury. Policy is part of it, but is not sufficient. And there's a lot that we can do even without any legislative change. It's about changing social norms, about changing that long trajectory that ends up with someone picking up a firearm and shooting themselves or someone else, and about working to reduce the after effects, the ripple effects of a firearm injury. And I believe you've mentioned before, I've heard you speak in a couple of lectures, that there's a big difference terminology-wise between guns and firearms. Would you mind clarifying what that difference is and how it impacts research in that field? So instead of talking about gun violence, which both is a term that has been politicized and that is generally interpreted as only talking about homicide, instead I talk about firearm injury. That is inherently a health problem, right? When we talk about it as an injury, it's something that where the firearm causes harm and and then you kind of talk about both how to prevent it and and how to treat it. It helps move us from a criminal justice or purely policy-based framework to one where there's a larger set of opportunities available for us to create change. And then you've also mentioned before that firearm injury should be treated as an epidemic, similar to a way that a disease would be approached. In what ways can violence be treated as a regular disease epidemic and in what ways would you say that it would differ? 
So the definition of an epidemic is a problem that occurs at a greater than expected frequency uh, in a certain geographic area. And you look across the United States and sadly we meet that definition. Firearm injury is increasing in just about every community. It affects uh, black and brown youth disproportionately, but it's also quite common in rural areas and among white men. When we use the definition of an epidemic, then that invites us to apply those standard public health tools um, that we all know work. I definitely agree with how we can kind of approach this as an epidemic rather than just a political problem or a community problem. So following up to that, what steps do you suggest that we as a community take to begin the process of dealing with this epidemic? So the first thing is talking about it as a public health problem. The second is creating funding so that we can collect the data and create the interventions. And the third is creating bridges between folks who may not think of themselves as sitting on the same side of this issue. So to follow up on the funding portion, I know that the Dickey Amendment was implemented in the 20th century, and that has created a lot of problems getting funding, especially from the CDC. So has there been any kind of leeway in that area to overturn that amendment or at least increase some kind of funding for violence prevention research? In the wake of advocacy from physicians, nurses, and other healthcare professionals a few years ago, we actually got funding to the CDC and NIH for the first time in 25 years, almost 25 years. It's terrific, much needed, but totally insufficient for the scope of the problem. Uh, so although it's wonderful that we're now able to do federally funded research to define and explore uh, interventions to reduce the number of firearm injuries and their long-term impact, more is needed. Definitely. The next question is kind of related to the first one, but how has onset of the COVID-19 pandemic impacted rates of firearm injury? And have you seen a difference in the types of victims of these acts of violence? So we've seen a dramatic increase in the number of firearm injuries during COVID, um, mostly, unfortunately, firearm homicides and disproportionately, again, Black or Hispanic youth. We've also seen a significant increase in the number of firearms sold. Um, there are already around 400 million guns in private hands across the United States. Approximately 5 million people became first-time gun owners during the COVID-19 pandemic. Very few of them received basic safety training, information about safe storage, or information about how to identify when they or a family member might be at risk. And the isolation and lack of community support that happened during COVID-19 that was so necessary at the beginning, of course, hurt people's ability to cope, increased impulsivity, and removed some of the constraints that often stop people from picking up a gun to hurt each other or themselves. Thank you so much for answering that question. And as a follow-up, you did mention before that even before the, pan the COVID-19 pandemic started, rates of firearm injury were already increasing. So was there some kind of societal or community change that prompted that increase? Or is it just as firearms are more easily available? You know, it's a combination of both. We're seeing suicide rates, opioid overdose rates increase as well. So it's more complex than just the fact that more firearms are available and in private hands, but that's certainly part of the equation. And then you also do a lot of research on the role that technology can play in behavioral health. So are there any particular strategies that you found that are helpful for violence prevention? There are so many things that we can do to reduce the risk of violence before it happens, ranging from identifying kids who are being bullied and providing social support and conflict resolution skills to them, to providing remote mental health support for kids that are struggling, to identifying 
uh, areas where folks are talking about firearms and including um, educational information, safety information in those online spaces. There is a wide range um, of prevention activity. There's also a big range of treatment activity for kids who have been exposed to violence to help reduce the risk of them becoming a victim of a firearm injury themselves. As your position as an emergency physician, by the time patients who have arrived at the ED as victims of firearm injury, is it usually too late to help them or to kind of implement those behavioral health strategies? It's never too late. There is always a teachable moment. And in fact, there have been studies done showing that you can decrease the risk of recurrent injury. You know, if someone is shot with a firearm once, their risk of a second being a victim of a second shooting goes up hundreds of times. You can change that by linking folks to mental health resources, educational resources, legal resources, and also community. Um, Here in Providence, I work with a nonviolence institute, a local community group that has folks who are out on the street working with families, with victims, with survivors to help change that cycle of violence. That's wonderful. And we're so glad that those kinds of communities and organizations exist because we can't do anything without community organizations. So you noted earlier that a change in policy isn't the only thing that would be necessary to kind of change the trajectory of firearm injury rates. But at the same time, policy is always an important piece of every public health story. So with the delicate political situations in the U.S. at the moment, would something of this nature even be possible? It's a great question. I am neither a legislator nor a policy geek, um, but there is space. And I'll actually say, you know, 80% of Americans agree um, that there are some policies which make total sense. And those are the policies that actually make the biggest difference. Things like universal background checks, things like extreme risk protection orders. I think right now, much of the policy change will be occurring on a state-by-state basis rather than on a national basis. But again, policy change alone is not enough. It has to be accompanied by shifts in social norms and, and in local practices as well. Thank you so much for answering that question. Last question for you today is, is there anything else that you would like to know on the present or future conditions of the healthcare situations in regards to firearm injury? I think the biggest thing is to not give up hope and to keep working in whatever way that you are able to do on a scholarly level, a policy level and community level, or just speaking up within your own peer group about how to stay safe and keeping this issue in the spotlight. I think the worst thing that we could do is to let these latest tragedies, you know, last for a media cycle and to forget that it's something we still need to work on. That concludes this episode of the Global Visions podcast hosted by the Brown Journal of World Affairs. Thank you for listening and thank you to Dr. Rainey for the opportunity to speak with her. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.